Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Nightmare. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable, the mystical, the magical, the macabre, New England's own Van Helsink. And with me, all the way across the pond in the land of the Red Dragon, the gold standard in ghost hunting himself, Mr. Steve Parson. Florida. You well. So, wow. Why do we always say pawn? I mean, every, every American pawn. says pawn. Everybody says pawn like, you know. No, we it's don't. Like, we don't say pawn. We say pond. Yeah, well, you talk yes. funny anyways. Well, it's called English for a reason. Yeah. We, we just refined it for you. Mm. That's what I was thinking. Anyways. Rest so. <laughs> anyways. <laughs> Today's show, of course, is brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 386 Merrimack Street in Methuen, Massachusetts. And, of course, the Messier Gallant Family Law Group. So if you get a crappy husband you want to get rid of, give him a call on, <laughs> on High Street in Methuen, Massachusetts. Oh, hang on, and, uh, you, hang on. are they it, a law firm or a hitman service? The same thing. <laughs> Do you ever work with a lawyer? You know it's the same. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, that's the uh, Glant Messier Family Law Group on High, lost another spot. <laughs> High Street in North Andover, Massachusetts. So moving right along from that as quickly as possible, uh, I think it's time to introduce our ghost. So I'd like to introduce a man who has a great voice. That's all I know. No, but he's a, a, a purveyor of the... Ghostly tales, murder tales, all that cool stuff, which I could never ever talk like he could. He is Mr. Simon in Whistle. That's your cue. Hello there, Ron. Um, <laughs> hi, Steve. Nice, nice to talk to both of you. <laughs> Good. <laughs> we got a delay, or you, could you, can you hear us all right? Yeah, no problem whatsoever. Okay. All right. Caught you napping. Anyways, uh, thank you so much for joining the show. And uh, I, I was able to listen to uh, – because you have several little tales on uh, YouTube, and uh, they're, they're intriguing. Uh, and they're very good to, to, to watch and listen to. And um, so how did you get involved in this? You are a ghost, uh, a ghost tour guide and also a conveyor or a uh, storyteller. It's a better good way to put it of ghost and murder and mayhem. And so how did you get involved in all this? Right, Ron. Um, many years ago, I joined the, the British Army and um, I was sent to a very beautiful um, city in the north of England called York, uh, which was the home of the... Um, British Army's uh, King's Division uh, Infantry Training School and um, I would go to York every evening 
and uh, it's a very, very beautiful medieval city. You have eight different ghost walks there. Oh. And um, I really got bitten by the bug. I went on one tour. It was a Victorian poisoning tour, would you believe? <laughs> and um, on that tour were people from all over the globe. Uh, it was one of those beautiful, inky, inky um, August evenings. It was just going dark. It was warm. And York is such a beautiful city, these very, very tight little medieval streets. In fact, nearly every corner takes you to a different century. And the guide brought uh, stories of ghosts, murders and mysteries to life, really. And I thought to myself, it's about time I left the army and started doing something a bit more touristy. Uh, and that's how I started, really. I got the bug from the city of York. Mm. I uh, I went on my first uh, ghost thing was in um, oh it was a historic uh, it's in Virginia what is that place yeah uh, I get it whatever anyways it was a uh, a candlelight ghost thing and and I loved it uh, but most of those tours quite frankly uh, it all comes down to the tour guide tour guide because uh, the, they they're the ones that really make it or break it. I don't think it's the stories as so much as the the person who tells them that that's the important part in uh, any of those ghost tours. Yeah, uh, some of the tour guides, of course, are very very humorous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I went uh, one step further, really, Ron. By uh, you can read about ghost stories. But I think the best way is to meet local people, and you can always tell. Uh, to use a British term, when someone's pulling your leg, uh, when someone's trying to, shall I say, pull one over on you. Uh, but you can always tell when someone's being very honest and very, very truthful. And uh, they're the stories which I find very intriguing. Stories from the heart that are ghostly related. Okay. Steve, you ever got on a ghost tour? Just curious. I've been on many ghost tours, including tours in York. Um, the river one, I think, was a favourite of mine because you get to sit down for most of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, yeah, um, I've been London, Bath, Bristol, obviously out here in West Wales in Temby, York, Liverpool, uh, Chester. I've never been on one of Simon's, but I, I am aware of Simon's um, prestigious output. Ooh, I like that. You certainly did on, on my television a few times. Oh yeah, so, uh, so I mean, did you like? I mean, do you? I mean, to me, it's if you haven't gone on a ghost tour, then it, it's definitely a, a cool thing to do. It's just, um, it's very entertaining. If you know, it, once again, it always goes down to your tour guide, I believe. Um, it's very entertaining and. It's a well well spent dollar or a pound, depending where you are. No, I absolutely agree. Um, I, I've I've been on some good tours and I've been on some fairly dreadful ones. And it's not the content of the tour; it's the person, it's the it's the whole package, the experience. It comes down to the guide, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to name names. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> far, far be it from me, um, but I, I, I wouldn't push too hard to recommend anybody going on the Tembi Ghost Walk. Okay. <laughs> so, Simon... Uh, <laughs> I think I said that out loud then. No, no, you didn't. No one heard that. That's all right. So, so Simon, uh, do you have a favorite uh, ghost uh, walk that you like doing or a ghost tour? 
Um, the one tour I really do like is the uh, East Lancashire Railway Tour, where I will um, meet a group of tourists. We go on the steam locomotive and we go for some very, very beautiful countryside. And the one story I really do enjoy telling on that tour is a story from the 1950s and a gentleman I met called Bill Morris. Um, Bill came to my home. I made him a cup of coffee. We sat down and the story he told me really made the back of my hair, my back of my head actually stand up. He mentioned he was born in the town of Darwin in North Lancashire and his house had a little garden at the back of it and the garden went down to the railway. There was a fence and he would sit on the fence and as the trains went by, he would wave at the drivers. The drivers, of course, waved back at him. Uh, you could say he became infatuated with the railway and he told his mother and father, when I leave school, I'm going to join the railway. He left school at 14 and got a job at Darwin Railway Station as a wheel tapper. His job was to tap the wheels when the trains came in to make sure they weren't cracked. Age of 18, he got a job as a fireman on a steam locomotive. And just after his 21st birthday, he got a job as a steam engine locomotive driver. He'd got the job of his dreams. He would work from um, Edinburgh right down to King's Cross, London. But in the 1950s, he was transferred to his own East Lancashire Railway. And when he took the engine down the line, he would go past his own garden and he'd pull the, the whistle. And his mum and dad had come rushing down to wave at him as he at the engine past the garden. On a beautiful, beautiful August day in 1952, he took the engine down the line. And in between Manchester and Darwin is a tunnel called the Suff Tunnel. Uh, at the end of the tunnel are these beautiful open green fields full of sheep. He saw sitting on the fence near the tunnel entrance a little boy with straw-coloured hair. And the little boy started to wave as the train made its way towards the tunnel. And Bill, of course, turned and waved at the young lad. He saw this young boy every day for the next four weeks. And, of course, knew ex exactly what was going through his mind because he, too, had once been a little boy. However, in October that year, he took the engine down the line and noticed, for the very first time, the little boy with the straw-coloured hair was not sitting on the fence near the tunnel entrance, but standing in the centre of the field, surrounded by sleeping sheep. When the little boy saw the train arriving, he started to run towards the fencing. Bill noted from the footplate... The little boy was running through, sleeping sheep. He yelled at the fireman, look at that, look at that. But the train was in the tunnel and the fireman replied, uh, sorry, mate, too busy shoveling. They got the train down to Manchester and they changed the freight over. And the fireman said to Bill, you're being very quiet, Bill. What's the problem? Well, you know that young lad? The young lad was seen near the tunnel entrance, sitting on the fence. That's right, yes, said the fireman. Well, today... He was in the field and he was surrounded by sleeping sheep. In fact, the sheep didn't know he was there. Oh, no, Bill, you're seeing things, said the fireman. They changed the freight over and came back up north again. As they advanced towards the Suff Tunnel from the Manchester side, Bill noted a red light. He slowed the engine down and saw the red light was being held up by a police sergeant. Bill slowed the engine and shouted down to the officer, uh, What's wrong, officer? Oh, terrible, terrible. There's been a young lad killed at the end of the tunnel. Oh, officer, that really is bad news. It really is bad news, said the sergeant. 
His brother was killed there five years ago. Oh, officer, that's heartbreaking, said Bill. Word filtered through the tunnel that they could take the engine through about an hour later. And as Bill took the engine through the tunnel, it emerged into bright, bright sunshine. And he glanced to the left and saw the straw-coloured-haired boy holding the hand of a much taller boy. As Bill turned to wave at them, they both raised their arms and both of them faded into thin air. Ooh. Bill elbowed the fireman. Look at that, look at that. The fireman replied, uh, sorry, mate, too busy shoveling. Bill never saw them again. But you can always tell when someone's being very honest and very truthful. And that story came from Bill's own heart. That's a cool story. Thank you, Simon. That was pretty good. Very but, touching story, that one, Ron. I, I think so. I think it's very touching. Uh, Steve, I'm sure, was touched by it because Steve is such a sentimental person. Oh, so I'm getting the blame again. Uh, no, it reminded me, actually, of um, a story that my, uh, an account that my daughter gave me many years ago when she was about uh, five or six years of age. And uh, her she used to play the friend's house, and her friend's house backed on to the Liverpool to Chester railway line. And uh, one afternoon, the kids, there was about four or five kids, were playing out, and um, they, obviously the, uh, the, the electric trains were running back and forth up and down the line between Liverpool and Chester. They run every 15 minutes. When I went to collect her later, she was telling me all about a steam train that was on the line. I was quite fascinated because I thought, oh, perhaps something like the Flying Scotsman or one of the other um, steam engines, historic steam engines, was visiting the area, and I'd missed it. So I looked in the paper and there was no mention of anything, and I was talking to, to Helen about it, and then I spoke to the her friend's mum about it, and she said, yeah, all, all the kids must have seen it because they came running in, uh, telling me to come and look. Uh, at the steam engine that was stopped uh, at the bottom of the garden on the line in the cutting but she said when she got there there was nothing to be seen the line was empty both directions you can the, it's a straight track you could see probably about a half a mile in, in uh, both ways so I started talking I asked Helen again what, what had happened and she said that they'd they'd seen the train but the train was stopped and it wasn't making any noise uh, but they could see the clouds of smoke from the engine and uh, all I spoke to them, spoke to Helen's friends over the next few days without sort of, uh, getting them to talk to one another about it I and gently asking them what happened the other day did, did you see a train and what was remarkable is the story was very very similar between all of them now I didn't know at the time um, that the the point where they were pointing to and showing me where this locomotive, this steam engine had stopped, had been a disused station uh, up until the beginning of uh, World War II, when the station was destroyed in a German air raid, along with a, an engine and the driver and the fireman of the engine, who was stopped at a red signal at the station waiting to proceed, when a bomb struck the station and also destroyed the engine. Oh, wow. There we are. So that was your own daughter told you that story? Yep. And seven other kids. Wow, that's pretty cool. There's another story for you, Simon. <laughs> yes, it sounds a good one. I like that, actually. <laughs> uh, again, um, you know, um, Steve painted the picture in imagination, and I think radio's ideal for that, really. 
Well, I, I do radio because I've got a great face for it, I've been told. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, we have, a, we have a, a segment on the show that comes on every so often called uh, Teller of Curious Tales. And uh, it's from a radio script uh, Steve uh, picked up. Where'd you get it, Steve? I found it on the internet, uh, on eBay. Uh, ooh, no, what, about five years ago? Um, mm. It was it was just a speculative thing. It looked interesting, so I bought it. I think it cost, I think, less than five pounds. And it was a buff card folder, and in it were these, uh, there were 200 um, close space type um, stories, accounts called the... T- uh, the whole series was obviously for radio. It was fully scripted. Uh, it had what the announcer says, the background music, uh, music fades in and out, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but they were clearly, because of the, the way they were written, because of the style, the language, uh, the words that were used, uh, it, was, it was obvious that these things dated from the 1950s um, or late 1940s, from the, hi- the heyday of American radio. We've never been able to find out whether the series was ever broadcast, uh, but looking at the scripts, they, they certainly seem to be very complete. These weren't speculative scripts. These were completely finished works, and there, were, there was a full set of them. And uh, we we offered them, well, we asked, a uh, bit of arm, arm twisting as well, to a friend of ours who, at the time, he works uh, in radio production. And... Um, he has periodically recorded some of these episodes for us under the guise yeah. of the Tell Curious Tales. Yeah, excellent. But we're trying to find out where they came from. Mm. So anyway, Simon, uh, do, do you agree? I mean, t- to me, th- those were the golden years of radio that when they had the, the old uh, series on that you just listened to. I mean, there was it, it's just, you know, they were just so captivating. You You would just sit there and look at a... A box, and yet you were enthralled by it. Oh, yes. I mean, radio can paint a picture and imagination. You don't need a set. Uh, it's all there. But to just sounds, of course, and uh, sounds do bring the, the stories to life, don't they, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, that's why they had all those people that did all the, the special effects for them at that time. I forget there's a name for them. I can't remember what it's called, though. But there's a specific name for those type of people. I know, si- I know Simon would uh, be aware of... Uh, particular radio favourite of mine uh, because I work at the computer most of the day every afternoon it's the uh, must listen to the play on Radio 4 oh gosh yes yeah Radio 4 absolutely excellent um, those those plays um, are just um, amazing really uh, but also uh, the longest soap in world history of course oh, is yeah. the options absolutely it just precedes the play as well by uh, about 15, 15 minutes or so uh, but the afternoon played, you can oh, lose yeah. yourself in it. You can absolutely lose yourself in it. Very much so. Very much so. So going back to all these these tours that you do and everything, um, have you ever experienced any paranormal activity or anything strange while, while you've done these tours? Um, I'm not actually a medium, Ron. Uh, I, do <laughs> get hired, um, I do get hired by... Um, uh, Organisations like Haunted Happenings, Dustal Dawn, these are paranormal organisations that have bookings all over the country. Right. And they will, tend to, they will tend to book me for things like Pendle Witches, which is very like your um, Salem Witches trials. 
Um, we go to a place called Pendle Hill. I take people onto Pendle Hill. I tell them the whole story of the Pendle Witch Trials of 1612. Then they bring the mediums in. Now, what has happened on a few occasions is this rather gorgeous aroma comes from nowhere. It's like walking to a flower shop, a very, very sweet, gorgeous scent, uh, a bit like a fabric conditioner, if you will. Um, this has happened even on those bitterly cold December and January days. And the one thing I always do is look around to see if anyone's got an aerosol. But they are different mediums and from different parts of the country. And that is something very, very unusual. But I would be a liar to say I've ever seen a ghost. But um, probably the, the best witness I ever came across was my father. And um, he wouldn't lie about anything. And um, his story is probably one of the finest ghost stories that I've ever heard. And um, if we have five minutes, can I mention the story? Oh, absolutely. That's why you're here. Very good, Ron. Uh, we're going to turn the clock back now to 1960. Uh, I was five years old. And um, I lived in um, industrial Lancashire. And my father bought this very, very beautiful Victorian house up in the English Lake District, a place called Westmoreland, a beautiful county. And I remember arriving there in the Rueville van and uh, getting out and seeing this lovely three-storey Victorian building in its own grounds uh, with beautiful Lake District mountains in the background, uh, lots of fields surrounding it. It was very isolated. But I, I really fell in love with the house uh, at first sight. Now, my mum and dad had no idea, but they were going to experience something very, very, very paranormal. I had a brother and sister who were just slightly older than me, we were all under 10 years of age, and mum and dad made the beds up very, very quickly for all of us to go to sleep. Uh, they spent uh, quite some time unloading tea chests, crockery, cutlery, uh, furniture, etc. And the last job they needed to do, really, was to put the curtains up. So mum and dad made their bed up, and they got into bed. And my father remembered turning over, and there was bright, bright moonlight emanating into the bedroom. He then heard the sounds of tiny footsteps, and the door of the bedroom slowly opened, and in came a liver and white cocker spaniel dog. His first thoughts were, I've left the door open. He got out of bed and walked towards the dog. Come on, come on, let's have you. His hand went straight through it. He was quite shocked what he'd just seen. He then made a second attempt, and his hand went straight through it for the second time. The dog then turned and looked towards the window, and then literally faded away. My mother had been in a very, very deep sleep at the time, and she woke up with a jolt. Oh, I've had this strange dream. Uh, there's a man outside in Victorian clothing. He's looking at the bedroom window with a dog lead in his hand. My father then conveyed the story to her, what he'd just seen, and they put two and two together. They never told me, my brother or sister, until we were in our mid-teens. And in 1973, my father, very, very sadly, sold the house. The house had a, a lot of good memories for me. Uh, I loved it very much and still do. However, I had no idea. But three years ago, I was going to go back to that home in a most unusual way. Some three years ago, my wife and I went on a Mediterranean cruise. I really enjoyed the cruise. We went to Gibraltar, Cadiz, Malaga, Malta, Italy. Thoroughly enjoyed it. On one of the evenings in the restaurants down below, uh, there was a rather attractive young lady that kept looking at me. And I thought, I really, really cannot be that good looking. Uh, she had a smile on her face and she came across and said, it's Simon, isn't it? 
I said, that's right. Uh, she came from a, a nearby town to where I lived in, in the north of England. And she said, Simon, I, I've been in your tours. I quite like them, actually. Uh, I am the events manager on this ocean vessel called the Oceana, uh, which was um, the vessel we were on. She said, have you thought about auditioning for a lecture um, in the cinema here in the, the Oceana? I think you'd do quite well. I said, well, would people really like ghosts, murders and mysteries? She said, I think they may, they may like it. Um, she gave me an email address when I got back to England and I emailed the, uh, the firm called Carnival and they liked my email and they said, well, you can either audition in Sussex in the south of England or Cumbria in the north of England. Of course, living in the north of England, I thought, well, Cumbria, uh, I'll, I'll choose that destination. I was given a telephone name of a lady called Maureen, who was the cruise director, and I was given a sat-nav code. I telephoned the, the cruise director, and she said, Simon, I shall meet you at 3.30 on Tuesday afternoon, uh, 2016. I put the sat-nav in my uh, car and set off, and found myself driving over the lovely trough of Boland, a rather beautiful mountainous region, into the city of Lancaster and right towards the market town of Kendall. Um, I went past my old primary school. I then found myself going up a very, very familiar drive and then up to the very, very house where I lived. I got there. I knocked on the door. Maureen opened the door and said, Simon, you look a bit jaded. I said, well, would you believe Maureen? I used to live here. I actually lived here. No, 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 she said. I said, I did. I actually lived here. She made me a cup of tea. I sat down and told her all about my father's experience. The teacup fell through her fingers and smashed her feet. Her eyes opened wide as she stared back at me. Simon, my brother lives in London. Every year he spends Christmas with me. The very first Christmas... He came rushing downstairs in the early hours of the morning, uh, as white as the sheet, and said, this dog came into the bedroom. It turned to look at me. I put my hand towards it, and my hand went straight through it. It then faded away. I looked at the ceiling, and I said, Dad, thank you. It really was a true story. <laughs> and that, I can assure you, is a true story, Ron. That is pretty cool. That's, it brings up an interesting uh, story about ghosts because, uh, unfortunately, we were coming up against the break, so I don't know if we can get into it right now. But uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about it when we come back from the break. So, anyways, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles International right here on Tojinet and Pararex Radio with uh, Steve Parsons and Ron Kolick and our special guest, Simon in Whistle. And Simon, how can people reach you? Right. I've got a website, which is simply www.tophattours.co.uk. I do have a series on YouTube called Ghostly Tales from the Grave. And I do have a book called Ghostly Tales of the Unexpected that can be obtained on Amazon and Kindle. Oh, cool. I didn't realize you did have a book. That's awesome. So anyways, we do have to take a break. Uh, you, once again, you listen to Ghost Chronicles International, brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 386 Merrimack Street in Mr. One, Massachusetts, and the Gallant Messier Family Law Group in High Street in North Andover, Massachusetts. We'll be right back after the following messages.
Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. Do you have a paranormal event, book, or something else you want people to know about? Then why not advertise it on Ghost Chronicles Radio? With over 150,000 downloads a month, get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject. We have a plan at a cost that fits your needs. For more information, contact Ron Kolick at anyghostproject at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Parax family. Two of Ghost Chronicles International. Our special guest tonight is storyteller extraordinary and uh, all-round ghost guide and uh, cruise entertainment. <laughs> I think it's fair. Um, it's Simon Entwistle, and I believe we left part one with Ron trying to remember a story. No, I'm not trying to remember a story, but he, Simon brought up a, an interesting... Oh, sorry. I thought you were trying to remember a story. No, I, I, mm. I can remember. But uh, he brought up an interesting point, and I'd like to actually both uh, your thoughts on it. And that's that he, he talked about the ghost dog. And are there that many, are there many stories about ghostly animals? And, and it, doesn't that kind of affect... Uh, what some people believe the ghosts that are disembodied uh, um, what souls of, of humans then wouldn't that say that dogs have souls I guess if you would say or other animals so what's, what's your thoughts Simon on that good question very good question um, my mum uh, she believed that the dog in the house um, would only uh, be seen by people who visit the house for the very, very first time. Um, because it was the very, very first night my mum and dad um, lived there, of course. And when Maureen's brother arrived for the first time, he saw the dog as well. Uh, we do know that that house at one time belonged to the High Sheriff of Westmoreland. It had its own um, pack hounds, it had its own stables, and it was a lovely old Victorian house. And uh, I'm not exactly an expert on the, uh, the subject of ghosts, more of a ghost storyteller, really, Ron, but mm-hmm. who knows? I mean, a similar story uh, did take place in the city of York way back in 1952, and this is a very, very beautiful ghost story. Um, a chap I met, uh, oh, a good 20 years ago, was called Harry, Harry Martindale, and uh, his story is a, a most amazing ghost story, which does involve animals and, indeed, human beings. Um, first of all, we'll turn the clock back to 1952, and he was a plumber's mate. 
he was working in this very, very beautiful building uh, behind the Gothic cathedral known as York Minster, uh, deep in the cellars of the treasurer's house situated behind it. It's a Tuesday afternoon. It's 1952. It's October. Um, He has a blowtorch in one hand, a soldering iron in the other, and some copper pipes. His job is to install central heating. He's working away quite happily on a ladder at the top of the cellar when he hears the sound of a trumpet that seems to get louder and louder. He glanced to the right and out of the wall appeared a beautiful white horse, but with a Roman soldier sitting on it. The horse went past him and straight for the adjacent wall, followed by platoon after platoon of Roman infantry. Harry was terrified. He scuttled down the ladder and cowered in fear in the corner of the cellar. He counted at least 80 Roman soldiers. He was transfixed to the spot, scared stiff but transfixed. He noted he could only see them to their knees. Each and every one of them looked to be totally miserable, slightly dark-skinned and very, very emaciated, not looking at all like Hollywood Roman soldiers, but from a different era, slightly dark-skinned, round shields, spears, and, as he put it, what looked like a leather kilt. As the last soldier went past him into the adjacent wall, the sound of the trumpet faded. Harry swallowed deeply. His heart accelerated in his chest. His mouth went dry. He rushed upstairs to see his boss and told his boss what he'd just experienced. His boss said, no, look, Harry, we've got a contract. We've got to get the central eating finished. We've got a contract. Get back down there again. I'm too scared. You're sacked, Harry. The poor lad was deeply upset. He was uh, traumatised. He'd also lost his job. He walked for the city of York and popped into a very, very beautiful old inn called the Old Star. When he got to the bar of the Old Star, leaning against the side of the bar was a, a gentleman from the York Evening Press, whose words were, "Here, mate, you look like you've just seen a ghost. Actually, I've seen about a hundred this afternoon. Oh, yeah, tell me about it, said the journalist. Harry explained what he'd seen. The journalist said, well, it's getting towards Halloween. Sounds like a good story. I'll print it. The story was printed, and the whole city of York laughed at young Harry. He was the butt of many a joke. However, two weeks later, more work took place in the cellar. They had to remove a lot more soil, and they found the area where Harry had seen his Roman legionnaires. They found a beautiful Roman road, and at the end of the cellar, they found a gate stoop uh, made from limestone with beautiful Roman numerals hammered into it, and the words Eberarchum. They'd found the very, very gates of the garrison of York. And that's when the historians went to see Harry. They sat down with him. And the way he explained these Roman soldiers were exactly the same as the ninth Hispanic legion that left the city of York for Carlisle and the Scottish borders and were wiped out by the Celts and the Picts. Harry somehow had opened another time and another era with his blowtorch, his copper piping, and indeed his soldering irons. And who knows, Ron, that's what ghosts may be. Something from a different time and a different era that Harry had somehow unlocked from a time warp. Hmm. So that's the famous uh, 
Yeah, treasury story. The uh, Steve, I mean, what do you what do you think about that? Is it is is it more of a time warp than a disembodied soul? Um, well, actually, there, therein lies the problem because if we listen to Harry's account, and I've heard it many many times, I've, I've actually mm-hmm. seen. Uh, well, of course, Richard Richard Felix. Oh yeah, met, <laughs> met Harry. Uh, and talks endlessly about that. Yeah. Uh, but I've actually, I've actually seen Harry um, give his account on video, um, first-person account, mm-hmm. and I've visited the treasurer house, treasurer's house, wherein now they actually have a a camera trained on the spot where the Ninth Legion is said to walk. Uh, and there have been other witnesses who, who also uh, similarly claim to have seen Roman soldiers in and around the treasurer's house, but. If you look at the account of what uh, of Harry's account, mm-hmm. and if you then compare that to any other account of a haunting, say for example of the dog we heard in, uh, from Simon uh, in mm-hmm. Westmoreland a few minutes ago, right, or or the accounts from Liverpool of time slips, um, mm-hmm. which are numerous and have been well well documented by um, Anne and Winsper. Mm-hmm. They all sound remarkably similar. So the problem we have is, is it a haunting? Is it a time slip? Are they one and the same thing, just given different labels? But it's interesting you talked about animals earlier, because uh, there are many, many animal ghosts in the in the United Kingdom. We're certainly not short of them. Um, we have some of the most bizarre in the uh, the ghostly headless chi- uh, ducks of Cheshire. Mm. Um and uh, my own, uh, I've had one ghostly animal encounter, and it will be at a location that I'm sure Simon is certainly aware of, um, because it's up in his part of the world, my part of the world, I'm from Cheshire, um, up at Chingle Hall, where many, uh, many years ago I was uh, part of an investigation group, and I was hastening up the stairs to change one of the discs in a recorder, and stumbled over a cat on the stairs. Now, at the time, uh, Trevor Kirkham, who was the owner at the time, didn't like cats, didn't have cats, and wouldn't have a cat in the house. Uh, the previous owner did, uh, but but uh, the Kirkhams didn't have cats. But I still nevertheless managed to nearly fall down the stairs after um, quickly doing a sidestep to avoid this bloody cat as it came hurtling down the stairs towards me and no the strange thing is the cat headed then into what was the great hall it's not that great it's 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 really quite small by by any standard um where there was four or five other people none of whom saw the cat so perhaps that too was a ghostly cat yeah i mean but so I guess the point of it is we really don't know what a ghost is. Therefore, we no, we absolutely don't know what a ghost is. I mean, I have my own labeling you know things. Yeah. Cause I, I, as I've said on on many occasions, um, I've always been against labeling something a haunting or a poltergeist or a time slip, because in terms of when you come to examine and investigate it, if you label it, uh, you tend to. Pre, uh, prejudge it and you tend to skew the the entire investigation process so I'm not a great fan of labels so I mean Harry in one of your story your Christmas story of course you, you talk about the, the cannonballs and muskets that were found and in your story you talk about 
being the first person to touch those after many years somehow triggers a, a time warp. Is, is, is that correct? Um, that was, a, a, again, a very, very beautiful story. Um, I met that lady in question. Uh, we're going to turn back to the clock to 1642 and the Battle of Duke's Brow, English Civil War. Uh, where um, Gilbert de Horton's men came across General Starkey's men who were defending the town of Blackburn. Uh, very, very silly time, really, because they um, Gilbert de Horton attacked Blackburn on the 24th of December, 1642, on Christmas Eve, and his men thought, Sir, we don't mind dying for you, sir, but not on Christmas Day. And they retreated but left a rearguard action on top of Duke's brow. Um, quite a few... Uh, casualties on both sides. But we pick up the story in 1995 when a lady who lives on Duke's Brow, she had seven children, they all left home, was left with this huge house, and to this very day she still runs a guest house. In the summer of 1995, we had one of those rather beautiful summers in Great Britain, which is quite rare really, and she went into the, uh, the vegetable garden to dig the vegetable garden over, and as the fort went into the soil she brought up a cannonball musket ball, broken spur, and what looked like um, the remains of, uh, of a, a hoof, of, a, of, a, of a, an animal of some kind. Uh, she put all these items into a seed tray, took them inside uh, by her kitchen sink, and the telephone rang. On the end of the phone was an Australian. Uh, hello there, have you got a, a room for the night, please, for my wife and three kids? Yes, of course I have, she said. Right, we'll see you this arvo. The Australian family arrived, and she said, just go to the front room, I'll make you a nice cup of tea. As she put the kettle on, she heard shouting and screaming, and the Australian family came rushing down the corridor, elbowed her out of the way, climbed into their car, and reversed at great speed uh, out of her driveway. She thought, that's terrible manners. Um, she thought, oh no, has my cat made a mess in the front room? Has my dog made a mess in the front room? She went to the front room and found the sofa on its back, a lampshade on the floor and a painting hanging very awkwardly. She told her husband. Her husband said, oh, don't worry. Australians, very strange people. But she was very upset. She really was. She had a, a reputation to, to look up to. That night, she got another telephone call from the same Australian from the English Lake District. His words were, uh, so sorry about leaving your house in such a hurry. I should think so. What's such terrible bad manners? Ah, oh, my wife's just got over it. What do you mean your wife's just got over it? Well, we're in the front room there. These soldiers came for the wall, right for my wife and three kids. Soldiers? Oh, yeah, soldiers, gouty beards, uh, bandages across the chest, uh, feathers in the cap. Right for my wife and three kids. We just got over it. Well, thank you for telling me. It wasn't long before this story got into the local newspaper. Then the national press arrived and then the York University professors arrived and they sat down with this lady and said, what, what's happened to you, my dear, is Martindale syndrome. And they told her all about Harry's experience in York in 1952. And they believe that both cases could have been linked some form of time warp, because this lady, as you quite rightly say, Ron, was the first person to pick up the cannonballs since 1642, the other items that were brought to the surface in her garden, and she was the first person to touch them. And who knows, she may have opened a time warp to another era, and indeed another time. Steve, what do you think of that? Does, is that possible? 
well, I can't say it's not because mm. I don't know enough. You know, we don't know enough, Ron. You mm. keep week after week, you keep asking me these questions. Is it a possible? Well, you why have the gold standard and ghost hunting, so yes, that's why well, I, I asked the gold because, standard. You know, that's because I'm the gold standard in looking for the answers, but we don't have them. Um, unfortunately, we don't know what a ghost is. We can't de- we can't define a time slip. Perhaps there is. I mean, there are theories. There are ideas. Um, people have suggested when you uh, remodel a house, when you do work on a property, uh, knock a wall down or remodel then the amount of people uh, experiences that people report, ghostly experiences and phenomena, does seem to increase. Mm-hmm. So perhaps this idea of we disturb something, the dust has settled and we move it around and it wafts back up into the air, if we take that to be the memories or the shades or the phantoms, it's, it, it, it has to be considered. Yeah, I mean, but there are so many different types of hauntings uh, that you know, in the different circumstances. I mean, even the was it the is it the Christmas haunting of the Battle of uh, the one they saw in the sky, Steve? That's your deck. Naseby, Naseby, yes, Naseby and Edge Hill, and most of the English Civil War battlefields have their ghost stories uh, attached to them, and the other battlefields too that predate um, the. English Civil War, to go back to the War of the Roses, uh, mm-hmm. the battlefield of Towton, uh, just outside Weatherby in York. Um, yeah, but we have a, we have a, a recreation of the bat <coughs> in the sky while some of those people oh, yes. are still living, though, it, right? It, it absolutely remains as the, uh, the uh, King Charles I sent a royal commission to go and examine the claims that were being made by the folk living in and around, um, it was Edge Hill, the battlefield of Edge Hill, mm-hmm. and um, they themselves witnessed the Phantom Army, the Phantom Battle taking place, and they recognised friends who had fallen in the battle, and they heard the sounds of the battle, and they saw the galloping horsemen, and the the toing and throwing, and the clashing of the of the swords, and it remains the only attested account of a Phantom Army or ghostly activity that has ever been attested by a royal commission. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we have, uh, you know, we have the uh, angels in the battlefield, and, uh, well, we've, that's been, yeah, okay. Anyway. You were um, going to say Monzo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's been, that was, that was quite conclusively, by the person that invented the story himself, uh, put, to, put to bed many, many years ago. Although, interestingly, although Arthur Macken, the writer of The Bowman and the the Angels of Mons accounts and stories, yeah. although he said many, many times, he disowned the story and said many times that it was just a story. I was writing a piece of propaganda for a newspaper for a, an uplifting story. Yet people were soldiers and... Uh, were were returning back from from France and claiming that they too had seen angels or the phantom bowmen uh, of Henry V's army um, and all manner of other battlefield apparitions. If, there have been several books published on the subject, but Arthur Macken, the originator of the of the story, it actually it became a frustration to Macken, who was a Welsh newspaper journalist, and he said on many many occasions, look. 
it's a story. <laughs> mm -hmm. Anyways, so Simon, uh, what events do you have coming up? Um, right. Well, I'm very, very busy tomorrow, actually. I'm at um, a hotel called The Spread Eagle, where I'm doing a PowerPoint show on ghostly tales. Um, I'm at Sarsby Hall, this very, very beautiful building. Oh. I'm sure uh, Steve will know it. Um, I know it very I'm, well. I'm there on Sunday at 11 o'clock and 2 o'clock, uh, guided spooky tours. And then I'm on Pendle Hill on the 19th uh, at a place called the Wellsprings, which is, again, another restaurant where we'll be um, conveying the Pendle Witch stories and, indeed, stories from the area. Uh, what I do love about my job, really, is you don't run out of material. There's so, much, there's so many stories up there that um, you can keep things going for as long as is required, if you will. <laughs> now, do I mean I? I kind of asked you about it a little bit, and you kind of like brushed it off a little bit, and pushed it on the mediums. But do people uh, who take your tours? I mean, have they reported anything? Because it's it's common in the U.S. when we have these ghost tours, the the, the, the tours, uh, the guides, as you will, will will always have accounts of people who who seems things in these tours. Uh, anything happen like that on any of yours? Uh, where the the people that were taking your tour have witnessed something or experienced something. Yeah, um, Sarsby Hall is a very very old building, and when I first went there some uh, six years ago, I met the events manager, a lady called Sharon, a very very brave lady actually. Uh, Sharon's job at night time is to lock every door at Sarsby Hall. Uh, she has a torch. She'll go and turn the lights off and go from one room to the other. She turns the lights off and she puts the burglar arms on. And when I first went there, she said, Simon, it's very, very likely if you have ladies with blonde hair, they'll get their hair tugged. I said, Sharon, I am not going to buy that one. Hmm. However, on the tours I've done, I've seen it happen where blonde ladies, just with blonde-haired ladies, uh, they give a scream. The one thing I always do is look behind them. And, of course, I don't mention the story, uh, which makes it even more exciting. Um, up in the, the top, the what we call the Long Gallery at Sandsbury Hall, uh, way back in 1874, um, a gentleman called Joseph Wilson. He was 24 years of age. His uh, mother and father had both died, and they, they left in the hall. And he spent money like it was like it was water, really. Um, when people like Charles Dickens arrived in Preston or Blackburn and Rudyard Kipling, they were all invited to give special renditions uh, to the family. He spent money like water. And um, one day the butler arrived with a silver tray. Uh, the morning post, sir. He opened a letter from Edinburgh. It came from the Scottish Bank, informing him that the Scottish Bank had just collapsed. Now, he was 24 years old, just a young lad. Uh, he owned the hall, he owned textile mills. But the poor lad became overcome with grief and placed the barrel of the forty-five service Colt revolver to his cranium, pulled the trigger. The bullet went through the cranium, through his brain, and is embedded to this very, very day in the mantelpiece. He fell to the floor as dead as a doornail. However... There have been some photographs with him actually on. And um, they do have a regular um, ghost night there, which I, I don't get involved in. I uh, just do the tours for the daytime, if I'm in, invited. And they bring a marvellous chap in called Gary Johnson. Gary is a medium. Uh, when I first met him, I thought, uh, another Derek Akora here. But um, this guy, uh, he's very good. And I would actually buy a second-hand car off him. Um, <laughs> he uh, did tell me, he said, Simon, uh, last night I had a group from London 
Um, they do have overnight stopovers where the hall provides an evening meal, breakfast, and I've seen at least eight sleeping bags in the main hall. And Gary will take them around the hall at night time, and he has all this equipment that can pick up the spirit world, if you will. He said, Simon, I've got this incredible photograph. You've got to see it. Um, I rushed to the hall to see him, and he showed me a photograph of three very, very attractive young ladies standing uh, in the long gallery. Out of the third daughter was a fourth leg, a bit like Jake the Peg, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, no, Gary, it's where they've taken the photograph, and it looks like a beam. The flash has made the beam look like another leg. He said, no, 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 you look at the end of the leg. And there you can make out a crisscross lace from a riding boot. Gary then got a book from the library of our friend, Mr. Wilson, wearing exactly that same riding boot, which I find just a bit concerning, really. Uh, as I tell that story, I almost feel as if he's watching from the rafters. But uh, Sarsby Hall is well worth a visit. Built in 1322, extensions into the uh, 1430s and the 1560s, and there are some of the most famous priest holes in Great Britain actually installed at Sarsby Hall. So if there's anyone in the UK that would like to come on Sunday, uh, it's 11 o'clock, and indeed, two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, sounds interesting. You ever come over to the States? Um, I've been to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been to Pittsburgh. And I've been to Boston. And I've got to say that I do love Boston very, very much indeed. With it, with its links with the United Kingdom, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was really, really funny, you know. I uh, In Philadelphia, I was on an open deck to coach, um, tourism coach. And the tour guide, she uh, said, And on the left, we got Pendle Hill there. Pendle Hill? And I saw this beautiful white building with the words Pendle Hill Quaker Movement. And way back in 1745, a gentleman called George Fox walked on top of Pendle Hill, sat down and had a vision of a brand new religion called the Quaker Movement. And of course, you would say the Quaker Movement is very, very strong. And it all took place on that hill, which of course is famous for the Pendle Witch Trials of 1612. Uh, The Pendle Witch story, Ron, if to mention it, would take about 30 minutes. And I know we haven't got the time, but who knows? (laughs) Who knows? Perhaps if you invited me back again, we could have the whole story. There you go. Uh, Yeah. So once again, how can people reach you? Uh, Right, Ron. I have a website called www.tophattours.co.uk uh, on there is um, all the uh, there's tours I do uh, you can also go on the internet to YouTube and I have a whole string of stories called Ghostly Tales from the Grave mm. and um, I also have a book called Ghostly Tales of the Unexpected and that can be obtained on Amazon uh, or Kindle, and I'm on book number two, which I'm very, very nearly going to release, hopefully for January of next year. And that'll be volume two, with um, stories not only from my own imagination, but based on local stories from the United Kingdom. So uh, these these stories are, are based on true true stories. Uh, the the first uh, first one definitely is, but some of the stories um, I've uh, used my imagination. Okay. Uh, the characters exist, the areas exist, but some of the stories in my second book I've used my imagination because mm-hmm. uh, people do enjoy a good ghost story. Oh, they do, they do, and uh, it does get the imagination going. Right. So, anyways, that was the uh, doorbell, which means pizza from the dead. Yeah, we've got to wrap it up. Uh, Simon, we want to thank you for joining us. And uh, one of the quick questions: Is is ghost stories big in the UK around Christmas? 
very much so. I blame Charles Dickens for that, really. Uh, <laughs> the, the Christmas Carol, of course, is one of the, the fantastic ghost stories. But uh, yeah, I mean, Great Britain as a tourism destination really is, as we say in this part of the world, the bee's knees. Uh, ghost tourism in the United Kingdom is very, very big. It's huge. Okay, well, there you go. It makes it tough when people like uh, Steve Parson who likes to go out and investigate them when uh, <laughs> there's so many stories around. <laughs> so anyway, we do have to leave. So thank you, Simon, for joining us today, and, and you have a, a great uh, day. My pleasure. Thank you very much. L- nice to talk to Steve as well. Yeah, likewise, Simon. Hopefully one day our paths will cross properly. I really hope so. Thanks, Steve. So, Steve, uh, anything you got coming up? Oh, wait a minute. Before we do, we have to mention that next week's show is a, a very special show, right? It is. It's the annual We Lose Control for the for the Ladies. Oh, the Lunatics have taken over the Asylum show. So, uh, yeah, tune in to listen to two Why? ladies waffling on about lady things. It is. It is. It's a strange show. But whatever. What can I tell you? It's surreal. Anyways, so I do want to mention also like that... Uh, on a phone call. <laughs> it is, really. Uh, anyways, I do want to mention also that coming this coming year, once again, I'm restarting my paranormal study group uh, at the Circles of Wisdom, and you'll be able to attend that every third Tuesday of the month uh, we'll have specific topics to deal with and uh, at the end of on uh, the 27th of uh, January I will be doing another dining with the dead crappy uh, Yankee swap in Y2K plus 20 so you can't miss out on that one that's always a good one always sells out so get your tickets early so anything you got coming up Steve before we do no no just Lots in writing. That's it. Good night and God bless. Good night. From goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night, deliver us good love.